0: there was this huge gap in media because wrestling fell sort of in between variety and sports and it was sort of scorned by sports people and variety people didn't know what to do with it in the variety section. So there was this opening for me to cover it, but the timeliness, we didn't have podcasts. We didn't have email yet or websites in a major way. So the 900 number worked. So my gimmick was, and it was my tagline, the biggest news in the first minute. So people could find out at least who won WrestleMania for a dollar
1: Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital media pioneers. Today, I'm joined in studio with Nicole Grisco. Hey, Nicole. Hey, Mike. So, are you excited to talk about professional wrestling journalism? I am journalism? very excited. As am I. This is uh, So, this is a an interesting opportunity for us. On Skype today, we'll be talking to Wade Keller, who's an award-winning American professional wrestling journalist. Welcome to the podcast, Wade.
0: Great to be here, Mike and Nicole.
1: This is an unusual, you know, I I feel I should sort of explain how this kind of happened. The people at Podcast One reached out to us. They said, you know, we've got this new podcast coming out, the Wade Keller Pro Wrestling Podcast. And he mentioned you as, you know, It's All Journalism as a podcast he might want to be on because he's interested in digital journalism. He's an entrepreneur. He's been doing this a while. So we said yes, because we thought this would be a really interesting conversation. Now it's up to us. To make it interesting, <laughs> that <would be> interesting. <laughs> so that's that's what we're, we're shooting for and, and we'll see how we, we we go about this so before we turn on the mics you you mentioned you've been doing this since you were 16 years old in October 1987 is is when you started your wrestling newsletter the pro wrestling torch newsletter so tell me about that how that came about
0: yeah I was I was a big wrestling fan growing up caught in my eye when I was like eight or nine years old and and it was just you know I was a I liked all sports but there was something about wrestling that with the you know, bombastic colorful personalities and the the simulated combat and the kind of male soap opera drama that I loved. And I also was very entrepreneurial. I was the kid who would sell the most candy bars for my little league by going and standing in front of the the grocery store and pitching pitching these one dollar delicious candy bars to customers and I'd outsell all my teammates. I ran the Kool-Aid stands and, you know, spent my free time coming up with cool signs and different gimmicks to try to you know, outdo my sales and profit from the previous month. So I kind of had that in me. And I also always liked journalism. Like I love the Lou Grant show. I remember watching that and thinking, oh, this is cool. I want to watch this. And probably there wasn't another kid my age who knew what it was or had watched it. So when I was 16, I kind of combined all those interests. And since I was in, uh, based in, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, the American Wrestling Association was one of the big wrestling companies at that point. They were fading a little at that point, but they had a real name value, and a few months before I started the newsletter, I guess I should mention, I had been, for a few years, reading newsstand wrestling magazines, and the way journalism worked in pro wrestling up until that point was, in order to sell magazines, you needed to have really cool photographs. In order to have really cool photographs, you needed to be given press credentials. In order to get press credentials, you had to write about wrestling as if it were real, and not cover any hard-hitting actual true journalism. You had to write about wrestling as practically a PR agent would if they were pretending that TV show was real, if it weren't. You know, like for me as a 13-year-old, that was awesome. As a 16-year-old, I was starting to want to know more. And there was a time lag between the magazines publishing and when things actually happened. There's about a six-week gap. So in the back of one of the wrestling magazines, I saw ads for it was like a fan club section you could have you know people could start fan clubs for wrestlers or they could say let's trade vhs tapes but there was also a newsletter section and i was like this sounds interesting and so i like one day ordered like five newsletters out of the back and a bunch of them started arriving within a one or two week period and they were just you know done on typewriters maybe at that point primitive word processors probably not that came a couple years later and i had all this information from people who were a little older than me but like me and They were writing about what was going on with real like within a week I would find out what happened at the previous arenas. And I was like, this is amazing. I love this. And I wanted to do it. So I borrowed my grandma's typewriter and typed up an eight page primitive newsletter covering the local wrestling scene and then some of the national TV shows and went to Insti prints and made about 20 copies and mailed it out to some friends and also that wrestling magazine and they plugged the newsletter once they got it because they plugged just about anything. And they said, this is a promising newsletter, give it a shot. And short answer, the rest is history. I I loved it, published it every two weeks during my junior and senior year in high school. I went to college right afterwards, while full-time in college. I think it was, it was probably in my freshman year, but it might've been sophomore year that I switched to weekly because there was so much going on and I'd seen some growth in readership. And I was like, I can't take weekends off anymore. So in the middle of college, I doubled my workload. And as soon as I graduated college, it was enough of an income to not only support me, but my mom had quit her full-time job to handle the subscription side of the business because she was helping me out to be nice, and then it grew into – a burden, <laughs> like, you know, working full time and doing the subscriptions too. So the money was there. I was like, mom, just quit your job. Let's go all the way with this. And so we had a little family business going thereafter.
1: That's pretty cool. And a couple of things you mentioned in there, you know, I, I started out in sort of entertainment journalism as well. I, I, I wrote about comic books. I worked on an entertainment website where, you know, we did movies, we did, you know, gaming and toys and things like that. And there's just kind of this, this sort of fine line that you walk in that kind of journalism because you want to... You use all of the ethics that you you do as a good journalist, you know, in reporting people and multi-sourcing things and and being fair because you want to inform the readers, you know, develop that relationship with them. But it, it can be really difficult when you're dealing with entertainment companies where, you know, for them, you know, any bad story is a bad story. They they want everything that, that comes out about them positive. So quite often they'll sort of control the information, your access to to events and, and things. And it can be really kind of a a, a tricky thing that as you're you're starting out. It's like you know, well, how do I how do I maintain my journalistic ethics while at the same time get trying to maintain access to these things? Is that something you sort of see?
0: Absolutely. I mean, the brand that I have built and my team of you know people who write for me, some paid, some, a lot of volunteers who have helped out in different ways over the years. The thing that I insist on is, in, and I've actually let people go over this is. You can't be softening your opinions or holding back facts in order to gain access or keep friendships. Part of what made the Torch newsletter work were access to insider information and a very closed business at that time. It's opened up in certain ways quite a bit lately with a lot of people who used to work in the wrestling industry or still do doing podcasts, sort of tell-all podcasts or tell a lot. They don't tell all, but they tell a lot. But the niche of the Torch back in the late 80s, 90s, and on was this is the only way pro Wrestling fans could get access to insider information. Well, you would think to do that, you would have to kind of trade favors in a way. Like, well, if you tell me this, then I'll put a positive spin on something you do. And those were deals I would never make. And there were people who I considered friends and who I was really friendly with and respected in a lot of ways who then would get involved in a controversy. And I would write about that controversy in a way that they did not like. And in some cases, the friendship endured and they respected me for my honesty and they thought that I was fair, even if it hurt. And other people went on rampages against me and, you know, threatening phone calls or badmouthing me. So but I've just I've been steadfast about that because I just think if I don't have a reputation that I'm serving my readers first or listeners first over the interest of trying to chum up be chummy with people in the business i don't think people trust me anymore and i don't think they want to read what i write or hear what i say at that point because it would feel compromised so i've been real protective of that
1: you know i agree that that's something that that you need to maintain because that's that's what your identity is as soon as you cheapen it suddenly people begin to realize that you're just sort of a mouthpiece then that's problematic because then they're not going to trust you they're just going to see oh he's just a shill for whomever
0: and there's people who want me to be a shill, and they wouldn't know that they want that, but that they want me to be a cheerleader. You know, I get the you know the emails or the letters over the years, hey, be more positive. If you don't like wrestling, just quit watching and that kind of thing. And those people, they'll find something else. You know, they'll find a different place to, to read or listen to conversation and news about wrestling because there are people who want to hold highly paid people in very coveted, creative, and on-camera superstar positions. They want to hold them to high standards because they're spending their time watching something that they love they want it to be good. Same thing, you know, with Walking Dead. If Walking Dead has an off year, people who love zombie movies or love The Walking Dead especially get mad at the writers or they get mad at bad acting or they get mad at bad directing and they express that not because they're anti-Walking Dead or, you know, anti-AMC, they're pro quality product. And so sometimes I'm real harsh on decisions that are made creatively or business-wise in wrestling and some people don't like it, but because they just think, Hey, you're hurting the business by being critical. And, and my stance is you're hurting the business by, by placating incompetence or bad decisions or, or laziness. And that has all been part of what I've covered over the years.
1: Right. And the fact is, is that even though you may disagree with something or you may not like something, the underlying thing is you, you actually, I guess, I assume you still love wrestling Are you still appreciate oh, absolutely. it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It would, it'd would be pretty obvious if I didn't, because it would, seem like oh, uh, another wrestling. It would seem like a, a laborious process to talk about it as much as I do and watch as much as I do.
1: I, I find it fascinating, this idea that, you know, you have something that you love and then suddenly you approach it from a journalistic standpoint. You know, here's something that, you know, I think is really cool. I think that a lot of other people is cool. You know, how can I contribute to it in a way? Believe it or not, I think there are a lot of journalists who find themselves into that, in that sort of space where that they, you know, whatever the subject is, is like, oh, I really like this. I want to write about this. I want to share what I like about it with other people. So it's cool that you you were sort of able to turn this in, into this business. Now, eventually, you know, you're still publishing the newsletter, but you entered the, the online realm in 1999. So tell me about that experience.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like I've ridden the wave of every media technology change in 30 years because, I mean, I started off with a typewriter. And, you know, folding the issues, stapling them, putting stamps on them and sending them out. And that was I I did a radio show on a really good break for me, too, on KFA and radio, the first or I think first or second all sports radio station before that became just a thing every market had. And I heard that they were doing an all sports station and sent an application while I was in college. This was 91. And I just said, hey, you know, here's what I do. I'd love to do a show. And they gave me a show on weekends. And I did that for a couple of years every Saturday or Sunday, depending on football season. And so did major radio station radio for a couple of years. And then I went to doing a 900 number during the 90s, <laughs> which was numbers. another form of media. And it has this, you know, soiled reputation, deservedly so in a lot of circles. And wrestling promotions did 900 numbers. And their thing was, you know, that they would have a deceptive or tantalizing teaser that they'd mentioned on the air. And then they wouldn't get around to it to like the 14 minute mark. And you're paying $1.99 a minute or, you know, your mom or dad are at that point by calling the thing. And so I was like, well, if something big happens on a Sunday pay-per-view or WrestleMania before the internet, people couldn't find out what happened. They'd either have to order the pay-per-view or hear from a friend or something like that. There was this huge gap in media because wrestling fell sort of in between variety and sports. And it was sort of scorned by sports people and variety people didn't know what to do with it in the variety section. So there was this opening for me to cover it. But the timeliness, we didn't have podcasts. We didn't have email yet or websites in a major way. So the 900 number worked. So my gimmick was, and it was my tagline the biggest news in the first minute. So people could find out at least who won WrestleMania for a dollar. <laughs> you know, they could find, if it was Sunday night at midnight, you want to know who won WrestleMania. For $1, you could find out who won. So that was my pitch. And most people stayed on for, you know, five or 10 minutes. And it was profitable. It made money. It was a service to people. So I wrote that for eight years until I started a website in uh, December 1999. And then I was part of the dot-com bubble and had several really good months. And then I got the phone call from the ad company going, we don't have any money anymore and we're not going to pay you. (laughs) And so that was quite a shock. But then, you know, things adjusted to normal. Then... Uh, I was still doing the print newsletter all along, but I offered online digital access to the newsletter and some what would come to be known as podcasts. I was called them audio shows because the word podcast wasn't around yet. This was around 2004. And so then eventually people were like, well, can I skip paying for postage and printing and just read the newsletter online and listen to your audio shows? I don't need the home delivery. So then I offered another tier in the mid-2000s where it wasn't just – online bonus content but the bonus content is what you paid for and so now that has become the majority of my business and now well f- since 2010 i've been doing a free podcast that's ad supported and that's what's starting actually this tuesday at podcast one now i'm moving to podcast one the uh, biggest and best podcast platform
1: yeah well we're there too and we're, we're happy, yes. to, happy to be a part of it happy to have you join us in that and what I like about what you were sort of talking about is you you were doing something new and different, but you were really kind of doing the same thing. You were just you were getting that information, but bringing it to where people were at, where the technology was at. And so now we're here we're, we're at podcasts that's, that's another. Iteration of that, but it's all sort of the same kind of deal that you've as you can continue on you You look for these new opportunities. What are the keys for you? Is it is it are you looking for where the audience is? Are you looking are you sort of thinking about how the you know The technology is going to help you do what you're already doing, but in a different way.
0: Yeah, really good question I mean Partially, I look for where the money is as a businessman because there's a business side. There's doing the monthly spreadsheets and, and looking at things that are trending upward or downward. You know, I, I stopped doing the 900 number not because it wasn't making money, but because I felt like it wouldn't be in a couple of years. And I didn't want to put a lot of time in on something that was fading when this Internet was burgeoning. I wanted to make sure that I was one of the best or the best at that. And so it's sort of like where the people go who want wrestling information That's sort of where I go. But I want to be as much – I don't want to be the first person necessarily to do anything because then you're kind of part of the is this going to work and how do you reach people and how do you make money with it. But I want to be like at that very next stage where, okay, this looks like it's going to be – it's going to stick. This website thing is not a fad and people seem to be talking about it. Or this podcasting thing is definitely how people are consuming their information now in a way that's just exponentially growing. So that, but I also want to do things that are fun for me. I don't want to do something that's going to make me miserable for, you know, 10% more. So part of it is I I love podcasting and I, I love the radio and I love the 900 number, but I also love the writing. So I don't really have like a, a concrete formula because I just don't know what's around the bend. But if there's wrestling fans who want my approach to covering wrestling and there's a medium to deliver it, my eyes and ears are always open for. Okay, is this something that I ought to pursue getting into?
1: Yeah, that's cool. the The idea of, you know, you started with something that you loved, that you you wanted to share with other people, and you grew it into many different businesses. And so here we are now at this point, with with this history that you you've created, this sort of identity that you've created, both as a um, person but also as an entrepreneur. You know, looking for opportunities in these different platforms, and that's kind of cool. And I think that's something that people don't always think about. You know, when they they become a journalist or they become, whatever they decide their job is going to be, is like, well, what company can I go do this for? You know, you seem to be making opportunities for yourself, or at least seeking them out and then jumping into them. Did you ever sort of? Did you ever get afraid when you when you do these sort of things when you take these new ventures?
0: Oh yeah, I mean, to a degree. I mean, not so much that I'm petrified, but yeah. Any any change. I mean, it's it's usually more exciting than scary, but any change, especially as I get older, <laughs> any change seems a little more daunting because you feel like there's more on the line. I mean, I like to be sort of in a groove, but also without a set schedule, so I, I'm sort of conflicted in that way in order to get everything done that I want to get done. I don't like a lot of disruptions. I don't like take a lot of vacations because I don't have a staff to fill in for me when I'm gone in all the respects that are necessary to run the business. So any change to that is, is a little bit scary, but at the same time, I, I, I don't know that, I mean, I probably would still be doing this if all I did was 12 page weekly newsletter, but I would have felt like I was missing out. You know, like I felt when I saw the early websites and sometimes when, you know, I don't know if it was 97-ish, you know, it was like really slow dial-up and I would look at these and I'd be like, oh, you know, it's just all these flashing colorful fonts and cheesy logos and all that. And I was like, oh, I mean, there's some information here. I'm not quite sure what to do with this. But eventually I got kind of a little jealous of that instant access to readers. So I got the itch. I'm like, I just, I've got to find a way to make this work. But I'm very, I have very entrepreneurial independent spirit in the sense that I've been approached to be part of. Other existing companies, you know, the online opportunity, I was invited to be part of a, an online consortium of sorts, and it just didn't feel independent enough. You know, I, I've always kind of wanted to, to own the key to the shop and not have a key card issue to me, so to speak. And so that's guided me some of the way, too.
1: Yeah, that, that's kind of cool because you have all of the pluses and minuses of being the shop owner. You can, yes, (laughs) yes, yes, you're the one who's worrying, did I leave the light on at midnight? You're the one who's got to, you know, make sure everything's up and running, that that people are doing what they're going to do. But because it's your shop, you're able to pivot towards something that may be profitable or may may be a good thing for the company. So that gives you that sort of degree of independence and control.
0: I worked with an app company when I first got into apps, I don't know, back 2008-ish probably. And... And it was somebody who I had connections with in the past who now was in that. He's like, hey, Wade, you know, love what you do. Remember me? I think we have something going on here called apps you might be interested in. And one of the reasons he wanted to work with me, even though I was far from their biggest client, is he goes, you're nimble. We don't need to go through uh, six weeks of meetings and lawyers and approval processes if we want to try something, if we want to put an app on Samsung TVs. I can email you or call you and go, hey, can we do this? We want to get our team on this and see how this works. I'll be like, yeah, do it. <laughs> Let me know how it goes. And so there is sort of a, a nimbleness to being the entrepreneur, not part of a big company where, you know, you've got to go through six layers of management and approval and a bunch of people scared for their jobs if they make the wrong call. I can just a lot of times go on gut instinct or, you know, just risk reward. And if it seems like it might work out, then yeah, give it a try. Well,
1: now, yeah. Obviously things have worked for you. You know, what advice would you give to somebody who had an idea, you know, for a company, maybe that may not even be a media company, but just of an opportunity what should they be thinking about? You know, how do they move forward?
0: Yeah. I feel like I can answer that, but I also feel like I have to have caveats in the sense that every industry or every niche is so different that the specifics of what made things work for me are I think unique. And so what worked for me in the very specific advice, it would be sort of arrogant to say, well, just work hard and you know look for opportunities and, and seize them. I don't want to be too generic about it. But at the same time, there are some things that I think apply to anybody, which is you have to have a passion for what you're doing because in most cases, I would say your customers are going to sense if you share the same passion they do. So if you want to get into a business, don't get into it because it's the thing that's trendy and making money. If it's not something you're going to love doing and your customers are going to notice it. I mean, if I go to a shoe store, I can tell if the sales guy sees this as a job or shoes are his thing, that he's reading the running magazines and he knows the brands and he knows that there's an ownership change and a quality drop in the stitching of these shoes and they're not going to hold up. Like, I can tell. And I like working with people who are passionate about whatever niche that they're in. And so, and maybe it sounds obvious to some people, but I, I think I've seen people out there, I know people who have put money up, taken out loans, quit their jobs to do something because they thought they could make money in it, but they didn't have a passion for that niche or that that industry. And I think customers are savvy and can figure it out, whether they're thinking about it or not. And overtly, they're thinking, is this person running this business doing it for the money or doing it because they have a passion for this? So you don't have to, but I think it sure is a huge help if you have a passion for it. And then I would say, I kind of said it in a previous answer you can be the first, you know, one of the very first people to build a website, one of the very first people to do a podcast. But if you are, there's a chance you're going to work hard for a while before the public figures out this new technology or this new approach to things. So sometimes it's best to be like the third person of note doing something once other people have tried it and failed or, or you know gone through a, a year or two or three or four of some hardship. So I guess that's something that comes to mind that I've probably benefited from at, at times. But part of that, too, is once I got my business rolling, I couldn't afford to take a ton of time to try something at the very, very, very beginning of a technology. But there's other people who they love technology and they want to be the first. And so they should dive in and do that because that's where their passion lies.
1: So one of the things you said there before about the newsletter, you know, you could still have been just putting out the newsletter every week. That's part of your passion, something you still would be able to do. Now, you're still putting the the newsletter out. Why are you still putting the newsletter out? Let me ask you that.
0: It's still making money. and (laughs) Why wouldn't you? Yes, if it's making money. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I mean, from the business side, that's part of it. That said, I mean... Would it be nice to have less work on my plate? It's a little in the weeds, but one thing I like about the newsletter is that it's a – because on my online website, there's you can get a membership to it, and you gain – with this password, you get to this VIP website, and you get access to almost every newsletter I've ever done. So if somebody signs up for a VIP membership for PW Torch, they get 30 years of wrestling history of my coverage. If I stop doing the print newsletter, I'd probably still want to do the digital newsletter because I like the idea of having – one click to get 12 pages covering the biggest news, biggest stories, some editorials covering the biggest stories that week. I like to have that ongoing chronicle where one thing that I feel with websites is once an article goes up and then runs off the main page, yeah, it might be there if you click, 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 click to page 37 of a certain category, but the history gets kind of lost a little bit. I think even if I stop doing the print copy newsletter, certainly that is the likely trend line at some point just cuz of technology and the gener- you know the next generation of people who don't subscribe to the morning paper or time magazine paper copy i still think i would do some form of a digital newsletter just to have kind of a weekly best of chronicle of what's happening in wrestling so at this point it's sort of it makes some money and it's easier people still want the home delivery but it's also serving double duty as adding to my digital content
1: Okay. All right. Well, and let's talk about podcasting. You already are doing a podcast uh, before even you come to, to podcast one with your new show. How is the new podcast going to be different than what you've already done before?
0: The platform that I've been on since, I guess, December 2009, but basically 2010, is uh, Blog Talk Radio. And what was appealing to me about that is I had been doing, at that point for about five years, pre-recorded podcasts, either doing solo ones into a primitive Microphone (laughs) or using a phone system that kind of sounded AM radio esque and for like conference calls and providing those recordings to online members. And Blog Talk allowed me to do two things take live phone calls, which was kind of cool because I came from radio back in the early 90s and that was, I enjoyed that aspect of it. And it was a way to distribute podcasts and eventually have somebody else selling ads and, and putting some advertising on them. So it allowed me to give free samples away of what I did as a way to sell the newsletter and the online membership, which was the main thing that I was doing. Well, over time, you know, the listenership grew, podcasting grew, the sound quality of the shows moved up where we could Skype call like we're doing today and get a really nice digital sound. So it became a bigger part of what I did. And I've got different staff who do other shows for me on the same, on the same feed. So it was great. And I was happy there, but then Stone Cold Steve Austin, top, drawing wrestler of all time changed the course of the industry during the Monday night war era in the late nineties, when there was a big battle going on between Ted Turner's WCW and Vince McMahon's WWF, Steve Austin took off like crazy and brought WWF from a distant number two to a dominant number one based on his star power and appeal. I've become friends with him over the years. And so I would do his podcast that he started a few years back. I was one of his first guests. And so he would bring me on to have kind of the journalist analyst perspective to his ex wrestler perspective and we talk wrestling and he was one of the temples at podcast one and if not the top show certainly one of the very top shows at podcast one so over the last few years I've done shows with him off and on and we thought it'd be a cool idea to do a weekly segment and then Norm Padditz, head of podcast one and founder of Westwood one back in the day just thought hey if we're if you're gonna be on a break with Steve how about you do a show here instead of using Steve's platform to promote your show somewhere else. And I was like, this sounds like a great opportunity. So the show's going to be very similar in that four days a week I'm doing a free show, Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursdays live, WWE shows on USA Network. So the first two shows each week, we'll review those. And then the third show is just going to talk about the big news stories of the week. And then the fourth show is going to be an interview. And that's what I've been doing at my current platform. And I'm moving that over to podcast one. It'll be different in the sense that we're not going to take live calls anymore and I'm going to just do a few formatting tweaks to the program. Um, some of it will evolve as I go. But largely people who are familiar with the show that I've been doing under the PW Torch Livecast label are going to, it's going to sound very familiar to them, except we're going to be more email interactive with listeners rather than live calls.
1: You know, Wade, this has been a fascinating conversation. I never thought we'd have a wrestling <laughs> journalist on uh, that, which is great. We didn't probably talk as much wrestling as maybe some of the, your regular listeners might have hoped, but for us and for our audience, this is this is kind of a great peek into a different type of journalism, a, a journalism that a lot of people do. Entertainment journalists, you know, people who are you know even sports journalists who have to you know balance the coverage of a, a sports team with their journalistic ethics. You know, th- these are all things that we we all use in our. Uh, in our toolbox. And, uh, it's neat to see how it's, uh, existing in a different space before we wrap up though. Tell me, you know, tell everybody where they can find your podcast and, uh, you know, give us, give us your 30 second uh, pitch.
0: Yeah. Well, if, if you are a pro wrestling fan or curious to hear me on the clock, doing my job talking about wrestling, you can find me starting this coming Tuesday. So that will be July 18th on uh, podcast one. You can just search on any podcast engine, Wade Keller, And my Wade Keller Processing podcast will pop up and click subscribe. It's free four days a week. And when you listen, you'll probably hear me try to upsell you to a digital membership.
1: (laughs) Okay, great. Well, yeah, that's because that's that's how we make this work. All right. Thanks for coming in, Wade. Next time on It's All Journalism.
0: If you think about these recommendation engines, what they're doing is they're saying, hey, here's some things we think you might be interested based on your profile, what you've read which is very different than here's the news, here's the most important story, here's the second most important story, and on and on and so on and so on.
1: In our next podcast, we talk to Matt Carlson, an associate professor at St. Louis University, about algorithmic decision-making in newsrooms. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's podcast was edited by Nicola Grisco, Amber Healy provided our web content, Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting at itsalljournalism.com. Follow the link at the top of the page. While you're there, why not leave a comment and let us know how we're doing? We're always looking for feedback on how we can improve the podcast and you know what type of guests you might like us to talk to. You can also follow us on Twitter, at All Journalism, and look for us on Facebook. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Are you going to the AAN conference this year? I'll be speaking about podcasting at AAN's conference July 27th through July 29th in Washington, D.C. Stop by and say hi. Thanks for listening to this week's show.
0: The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this
1: region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but
0: the stuffy bureaucratic politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC the finish the game podcast with your host sean alexander draw play to sean across
1: the 10 to 5
0: touchdown seahawks
1: hey this is sean alexander nfl mvp check out my podcast finish the game where i discuss sports and life
0: lessons helping you become an mvp the finish the game podcast find it on itunes the podcast one app podcast one.com or at wtop.com search podcast dc